I'm going to invite you, please turn with me to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. We're doing a series of meetings. Thank you for coming. Uh, this morning we had planned to speak about the second coming and the end of the world. Well, that's still our plan. That's exactly what we're going to speak uh, on. However, uh, the whole series was supposed to be based on the sanctuary and most of it has been. The last few days, of course, we've kind of neglected the sanctuary, so I'd like to go back to it for a little bit. I want us to notice that the plan of salvation, and I really am sorry that we don't have our panels here, but that's what happens when you move to a different building. In any case, you have to bring back in your minds the pictures of the sanctuary that you've been looking at for the last four weeks, three weeks, four, I guess. And I want us to notice that the plan of salvation is divided into Three phases. We know that already, don't we? There's the outer court. That's where we find salvation. That's where we find justification. That's where, because Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, we find forgiveness and pardon and all these good things. Well, Jesus went to the cross in A.D. 31. The second phase of salvation is when enter, is when Jesus enters into the holy place of the sanctuary in A.D. 31, and He ministers unto us up until 1844. Jesus is our intercessor there in the holy place, and He's working at sanctifying to Himself a people. So He has the table of showbread over here, and He has the candelabra or the candlestick over on the south wall and then there's the golden altar the the altar of incense and by these three exercises by reading the word of God which we find the table of showbread represents and by praying at the altar of incense and of course by witnessing by these three exercises we become stronger and stronger in our Christian experience we become more and more like Jesus And then in 1844, Jesus transferred to the most holy place of the sanctuary where he intends, has been intending, has been cleansing the sanctuary ever since to blot out the sins of his people. And so A.D. 31, justification, A.D. 31 to 44, sanctification. And in 1844, Jesus moved into the most holy place to do his final atonement. That's what we're looking at. Now, what happened, of course, in the outer court and in the holy place, we call that the daily. The daily can also be um, translated, interpreted as the continual or the perpetual. And so that you know that in the sanctuary at that time, every day, every day, there would be a morning sacrifice, there would be an evening sacrifice. There would be bread on the table all the time. It was continual. There would be the candlestick would have flames of fire lit up all the time, perpetually it would be that way. And so also would the incense rise from the altar of incense perpetually. This was going on all the time, every day, every day. And so that part of the sanctuary service was called the daily. However, when we cross into the most holy place of the sanctuary, this thing happened just one day out of every year. It's called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. Okay? The sanctuary services had a one-year cycle. And this represented the whole cycle of the human race. From the day that Adam first sinned, his very first sin, and that sin when he confessed it, entered into the sanctuary of heaven. From that time all the way until the close of probation and by extension onto the second coming of Jesus Christ, then that, that was all represented by the sanctuary service in one year. So now, what happened on the Day of Atonement? 
what, on, what happened on that one day when it was the cleansing of the sanctuary. I had you turn with me to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16, we're going to read verses 29 and 30. And this shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, ye shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourns among you. For on that day shall the priest, which represents Jesus, shall make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. So, this is what's happening. All year long, sins are entering into the sanctuary. All year long, sins are entering into the sanctuary. Morning and evening sacrifice. People are coming with lambs. And, and the, the man or the person who confesses his sins on the lamb, then the, the sin transfers to the blood of the lamb, and that blood is taken into the sanctuary. All year long, sins are transferred to the sanctuary. And that represents what happens once a year, what happens all throughout history, actually. This is what it represents. People have been confessing because Jesus Christ has presented Himself as the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb who paid the price on the altar of sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. Once per year, however, representing the final atonement, the people did no work. They had to concentrate on what was going on. The people were asked to afflict their souls. They were asked to fast, to search their hearts and confess fully because this was representing the end. Close of probation. Finished. And every year this thing was reenacted. The priest would take, by the blood of the, the atonement, of course, blood into the sanctuary. Then he would cleanse the sanctuary of all the sin that had entered there all year long. And then probation would close. And a final pronouncement was made. If you go with me to Revelation chapter 22, I'm sure you know uh, this verse by heart. It's been repeated to you as Seventh-day Adventists all your lives. Never mind. Revelation chapter 22, we're looking at verse 11. And this comes at the end of time when the sanctuary closes, probation is finished, and Jesus makes a pronouncement. He gets up and He makes this pronouncement. Verse 11, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Nothing changes from that point on. It's finished. That's the end of the plan of salvation. Some have received Jesus as their personal Savior and have received salvation and have received the, the character of Jesus Christ into their lives. Let them be holy still. Some have rejected the plan of salvation. They've decided to keep their own sins and to pay their own penalty. And the pronouncement is, let them be filthy still. Well, that's the Day of Atonement. On that day... The high priest chose two goats. Let's go back to Leviticus chapter 16 now. Leviticus chapter 16. The, before going into the sanctuary, the priest chooses two goats. Verse 5, Leviticus chapter 16. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron... Now just We'll stay with verse 5. Now... Why two goats? What were the goats for? Verses 8 and 9. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat or Azazel representing Satan. Okay? 
The Lord's goat was killed. But this time, this goat, this, this time there is no sin transferred onto this goat at all. What comes from the goat, of course, when he is killed is blood. But this time, the blood does not bear sin. And this blood is what's used to clean the sin out of the sanctuary. So what's really happening here is that this blood will cleanse the sanctuary of sin. So this is an offering for the sanctuary itself. And I don't know if it says that in verses 16, 15 and 16, but let's read there anyway. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering. That's the Lord's goat now. That is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place. Did you notice what it said there? He makes an atonement now for the sanctuary. It's not an atonement for the people. It's an atonement for the sanctuary. Because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, because of their transgression and all their sins, and so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And so this is what's going on here. There are two goats. One is for the Lord. The other one represents or is for the devil. The one for the Lord is killed, but no sin is pronounced. No sin is transferred to that goat. The clean blood is used to as an atonement for the sanctuary, not for the people, but for the sanctuary, to cleanse the sanctuary of all the sins that have been accumulating in there over the whole year, which represents, like I said before, all the sins that have gone into the sanctuary from the first sin until probation closes. The other goat is not killed. Verse 10, this is Leviticus chapter 16, we're looking at verse 10. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement for him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. Now, this goat represents Satan. All the sins that Satan has tempted God's people to commit so that they confessed them into the sanctuary. All those sins now are being cleansed out of the sanctuary. But what are they going to do with them? They put them on the head of the live goat. That's what they do. And then by the hand of a fit man, this goat is led into the wilderness where he is to... Who knows what happens to the goat when he's in this, into the wilderness all by himself forever. Eventually, I suppose for sure he dies. This is a representation of what happens to Satan after Jesus comes. The sanctuary is closed. Jesus comes at the second coming. And Satan, what happens to him? For a thousand years, he gets locked up. He gets thrown into the wilderness. And all that he can do is think about his folly. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And we're going to look at verses um, 1 to 3 in Revelation chapter 20. And I saw an angel come down from heaven. This is right after the second coming of Jesus having the key of the bottomless pit, which is also called the abyss in the Bible. It's also just a place of nowhere. (laughs) And a great chain is in his hand. And he laid hold upon the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit, the abyss, and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled And after that, he must be loosed a little season. 
Wow. Isn't that amazing? How would you like to spend a thousand years in a wilderness by yourself, sitting on a stump, thinking? (laughs) Wouldn't that be terrible? Now, you know, there's often in my mind a question, what happens to all the other evil angels, all the other devils that exist? Are they there too in the world? It's amazing to me that the devil, I mean, that the Bible only points to the devil and says that he's bound for a, te- a thousand years. I suppose all the other devils are bound for a thousand years too. Uh, it doesn't say so, but I suppose that that is so. Now, the only reason that it seems to me that only one is mentioned is because, do you know how devils get along? Can you imagine devils getting along? I mean, it's hard enough for us to get along down here in this world the way we are, good and bad and the mixture of all things. And there's some people we just can't stand. And and how would you like to have to spend a thousand years with somebody you can't stand? (laughs) Well, devils are devils and they're all really, really bad. And so it would seem to me maybe they're all a thousand years bound in this world, nothing to do, but they have nothing to do with each other either because they're, they're fed up with one another. I don't know. I'm making this up, but you can. It's just a question that goes into my head. What in the world happens to these poor devils? Have you ever heard the expression "poor devils"? <laughs> yeah. Now, this yearly service, as it happened in Leviticus chapter 16, represents also God's intentions for His people after 1844. After 1844, Jesus moving into the most holy place of the sanctuary, God had specific intentions for His his people. He intended that His people would put away sin. He intended that His people would live up to all the light that would come to them little by little as it would come to them. He intended that these people would become the 144,000. They would stand before God, faultless before His throne. They would be sealed with the seal of the living God. And once sealed... God could use them before the second coming here to make a demonstration such as He's wanted to make right from the beginning. Go with me to Revelation chapter 18. And we're going to look at the first four verses. And there we have a description of the demonstration that God has always wanted to make. Revelation 18 verses 1 to 4. And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power, that's the power of the Holy Spirit, coming down from heaven, because these people are sealed with the seal of the living God. And then the earth was lightened with the glory of God's character. Oh, the whole earth. This is coming. This is coming. Last night we were talking about America and prophecy. And the two nights before that, we're talking about the mark of the beast. And we saw how serious the times are going to be when they come. But do you know that these terrible times when they come to us will be mixed? Will be mixed with glory? That we will be filled with the Holy Spirit at this time when the whole world will be against us. They'll want to kill us. There's going to be sanctions against us. And yet at the same time, the Holy Spirit is going to come down. And when we speak, there's going to be such power that the whole world will be lightened with the glory of God's character. What a wonderful time to be living in. What a terrible time to be living in. And we look at the time of trouble and we, we hope it doesn't happen within our lifetimes. And then we look at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in latter rain power and we hope it would come right now. Well, what's really happening is we wish we could have the Holy Spirit and we wish we wouldn't have to deal with the time of trouble. But do you know that we couldn't have the Holy Spirit without the time of trouble? Because we are such proud beings. That God has to keep us humble on the one side so He can make us glorious on the other. And by the time it's all over, we will know that it was God who did it and not we ourselves. What a blessing. Hey, say, are you willing? 
Are you willing to be used of God? Are you willing to understand what it means to be living in the anti-typical Day of Atonement? Are you willing to know what Jesus is trying to do in the most holy place? That He's trying to make you holy? That He's trying to get to, to, trying to get you to quit sinning? That He's trying to get to the point where He can blot sin out of the sanctuary, out of all of our lives, so that He can make a demonstration such as He's never been able to make before? Ah. Uh, I can't wait. I can wait. I can't wait. It's that way. <laughs> there's parts of it where we don't want to see anything of it. And there's parts of it where we wish we wish we could partake of every day, even right now. Well, we're going to take a little bit of time now because of the title of the message, of course, is The Second Coming of Jesus Christ and the End of the World. So turn with me to Second Timothy, Second Timothy chapter 4. And we spent time looking at the... Most holy place of the sanctuary and what's really going to happen there because it has a bearing on the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ would have come long ere this. Lord, man, He would have come long ere this if it hadn't been for His people not buying in to what He's trying to do in the most holy place. We need to buy in. We need to understand. We need to cooperate with Him. We need to be with Him on the same page. Unless, and, and unless we do, the second coming can't, can't happen. Just can't. We're in 2 Timothy. We're in chapter 4. I don't know if I said that. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is old now. He's led a good life. He's been a good Christian. And soon he's going to be beheaded. And he knows it. He knows it. He, he says so right here in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. And I want you to notice his spirit. I want you to notice the, the, his attitude, his frame of mind in verses 6 to 8. For I am now ready to be offered. There you are. Hey, can you say it? I am now ready to be sacrificed. Come and do it. <laughs> well, I don't know that I would be quite that upfront about it. But anyway, for I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. He knew it. He wasn't a bit afraid of it. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me in, at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love His appearing. Jesus is coming soon. Do you love the appearing do you love the thought that Jesus is coming soon? Now, don't answer that. Because you might lie. How many people love the, the thought of Jesus coming soon? Can I tell you who it is that loves the thought of Jesus coming soon? If you've got cancer, you love the thought of Jesus coming soon. If you're going through a nasty divorce, you love the thought of Jesus coming through soon. If you're hurting somehow, if you're going bankrupt financially, if you've just lost your house, if everything's going wrong, if your kids are giving you grief, then you love the idea of Jesus coming soon. But if in your life everything is hunky-dory and everything is good, then you begin to think, well, I love the idea of Jesus coming soon, but I really would like to get married before you came. So can you hold off just a little bit? I really would like to have children before you come. Can you just hold off a little bit? That would be so nice if I could just experience life a little bit. I'd like to be able to prove what I can do down here in this world below. I, you know, I haven't had the experience and I really... Do you know why it's that way? This world hasn't been so bad for some of us in some countries, for sure. And I, I, no, I can sympathize with all of that. There's a lot of things that I've wanted to do. I would like to see my life run through just to see how far the Lord can bring me, you know. And, and what things can I do in this world, what I have chance to do it. 
so you can begin to understand that we've put some affections on the things down here below. And, and we've put some affections on the things above, on Jesus Christ and on the Lord and on heaven and all these things. And we're torn between two. Do you love His appearing, really? Do we have to have grief to love His appearing? Ah, friends, listen, I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on anyone. The truth of the matter is I'm just being realistic. This is who we are. We are human beings and there's a lot of tearing in our, in our hearts happening because we are attracted this way and we are attracted that way. So don't beat yourself up if the true answer is you don't love His appearing. What you and I need to do is to get on our knees and say, Lord, no, I don't need circumstances. I need a change of heart. I don't want everything to go sour in my life so that I'd love your appearing. I want to love your appearing when everything is going great. I want to be able to see that this world is not my home. I want to be able to see that everything is not so good down here. If I could only have a glimpse of heaven, everything down here would appear so dark and so dull and so boring and so awful that I'd want to go to heaven. That's what we need. We need God to be speaking to our souls and revealing Himself to us. You know, in America, we have a saying, everybody makes me happy. Some make me happy when they come and some make me happy when they go. Have you ever heard that? Yeah. I have um, some cousins. My father had 14 in his family and one of his sisters had 12 kids. And uh, ten of them were boys and she had two girls, but they were kind of younger. About a third of the family was older than I was. And they were strong boys and they were big boys and they were rough boys and they were, they were, you know, the word that came to my mind was in French, brise <laughs> that means they break iron. That's how they were. The whole family, just the roughest bunch of Irishmen you ever met in your life. And anyways, I hated to see them come if it was Christmas. I didn't mind them coming other time, but if it was Christmas, I hated it when they would come. Do you know why? Well, for whatever little gift I might have received at Christmas, it was trash by the end of the day when they had come. That's how it was. Some people you love to see them come and some people you love to see them go, but you love to see everything, right? Yeah. So we don't like to just see just... Everyone or anyone come. And many would wish that Jesus would hold off just a little while longer. Well, I'll tell you what, the world is coming to the point where I'm beginning to wish that He would come. The economy is beginning to look like we're all going to the Dust Bowl very soon. And we're all going to be crying in our soup very soon if there is any soup to be crying into. Yeah. Ah, uh, if the Lord would come. What a blessing it would be. It would seem. Unless things are going too well. How is it with you? Are things going so well with you that the appearing of Jesus is... It's, uh, we know the doctrine. It's wonderful. We know it will happen. But there are things that we'd like to do yet in this world. Let's look in our Bibles now at the signs of Jesus' coming. We're looking at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Excuse me, Matthew chapter 24. What am I saying? Matthew chapter 24. This is the great chapter on prophecy and the signs of Jesus coming. Matthew 24. Jesus and the disciples are walking by the old temple. Well, it was the temple. It wasn't neither old nor young. 
And it was a wonderful thing. And the disciples, as they're walking by this temple, they, they had Jesus notice the size of the stones and the beauty of this building. And Jesus said something that kind of threw them uh, a curveball here in verse 2. And Jesus said to them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say to you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And the disciples are like, Really? How can that be? Do you know that these stones were seven and a half feet wide? They were nine feet thick and they were 40 feet long. That's, a, that's what they tell me if you look into the commentaries that that's how big these stones were. A 40 foot long stone that is nine feet, nine feet thick and seven feet wide, how much do you think it weighs? Well, the disciples were trying to measure that. They couldn't lift one end, by the way, all of them put together. And so they said, well... Jesus can't be talking about anything but the end of the world. For sure, that's all he's talking about. And so they decided to ask him a three-pronged question in verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. They waited till everyone else was gone now. It's just the disciples in him. And they said, tell us, when shall these things be? Question number one. And what shall be the sign of thy coming, question number two, and of the end of the world, question number three. And do you know that in answering this, Jesus decided to answer all three questions with one answer, which indicates to us, of course, that prophecy can have more than one meaning and more than one fulfillment. And we see that this is really applying here. Now, not so very long after, and I think I figured out it was about 36 years later, a general by the name of Titus did invade, did have Jerusalem under siege and the temple specifically because most of the Jews ran to the temple to hide and to because they thought they would have protection from God being in the temple. And so Titus comes along in A.D. 70. And when he comes along, he puts it all under siege and he gives a strict command to his soldiers not to damage this temple. You can imagine, hey, this is one beautiful building. Why Damage the building. Okay, let's keep it together. Well, during the fight, one of the soldiers had a firebrand in his hand and he threw it into the temple and the curtains got on fire. Before it was all over, the whole temple had burnt down to the ground, at least everything that could burn. But in the heat of all of that, all the gold that was in the temple melted. And as it melted, it ran down the walls and in between the big stones on the, on the walls of the temple. And... Before it was all over, after the battle was over, for sure the soldiers then went around with wedges and they would wedge these big stones up and over and they would collect the gold that had leaked between these big stones so that Jesus' word had been fulfilled. The Bible is true. Jesus doesn't lie. He knows what he's saying. 36 years before it happened, he said not one stone would be left upon another. Everyone in a big hunt for gold had destroyed the whole temple. Let's look now at the first sign. Uh, Matthew 24, we're looking at verses 4 and 5. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed. This is the first warning. This is the first sign that Jesus is pointing to to say that Jesus is coming. Again, just before His second coming. Verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. Is it possible to be deceived by people? Who does the devil use? Who does the Lord use? We covered all that the other day, didn't we? Verse 5. 
For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. Now he repeats that warning in verse 24. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they would deceive the very elect. Well, what's another word for signs and wonders? Miracles. Did you notice who's working the miracles this time? It's not God. So, are miracles proof that God is in it? No, no. Look at Revelation 13. Keep your fingers in Matthew 24. We're going to go to a couple of verses here. Revelation 13. I think we saw that yesterday, if it wasn't the day before yesterday. Revelation 13. And we're looking at verses 13 to 14. And when the dragon saw... I got that wrong for sure. Verse 13. And he doth great wonders. This is talking about the second beast. This is talking about American prophecy. This is the beast with the lamb-like horns who speaks like a dragon. Verse 13, he does great wonders. In other words, he works wonderful miracles, he does. So that he makes fire to come down from heaven on earth and in the sight of men. What for? To deceive them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. There you are. There's going to be amazing miracles. I wonder if Christians of other denominations read these words. I wonder what they're going to think when miracles happen and they're happening like mad. Do they weigh whether these miracles are miracles coming from God or miracles coming from the enemy? I wonder if they do that. It's amazing. It seems to me that the only way they would not do that is if they've neglected the Bible. If this is if now the Bible is really not worth anything more. Religion, we know what it is. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. We know what we're doing. And if we see a miracle, we know that it comes from God. Ah, how many people are going to be deceived in that day? Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're looking at verses 14 and 15, and this is talking about Satan himself. And no marvel, don't wonder, don't be surprised, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. He can transform himself into anything, and when he does, it always looks good. Verse 15, and that's of course, is the greater deception. Therefore, it is no great thing of his ministers also if his ministers also be transformed as ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. And so there's a whole host of people in this world parading themselves as righteous people of God. Isn't that true? Sure there is. And how are we going to discern who indeed is a minister of God and who isn't? We can't go around judging whether a person is from the devil or from God. Ah, but we can know the Word of God. And if they say anything or do anything that is contrary to the to the Word of God, then we may know where they're coming from. Back to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, we're looking at verse 23. Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. Why not? Isn't Jesus coming soon? Well, yes. But the Word tells us how He's coming. And if they'll tell you He's here or He's there, you know it isn't true by what the Word says about His coming. Verse 26. Wherefore, if they, say, if they shall say unto you, Behold, He's in the desert, go not forth. Behold, He's in the secret chambers, believe it not. 
And the Word of God says, don't go. And so in that day when they tell us that Jesus is in the devil, in the desert, or Jesus is at the stadium, or Jesus is wherever He is, what do you know to do? Don't go. Do you know why you're not going? Because that's not how Jesus is going to appear. And we can study that further as we go. There's five facts that would prove it. Fact number one. Jesus' appearing will be literal, not mystical. Go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And we're going to look at that in Acts chapter 1. We're looking at verses 9 to 11. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus is still on the earth. He's with His disciples. He's about to leave. And His feet are lifting from the ground. And He gives His final commission to His disciples. Look at verse 9. And when He had spoken these things, given His last great commission here, while they beheld, He was taken up, and a cloud received Him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as He went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Those are angels. Which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye up, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taking up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Hmm. How will Jesus return? As he went up, he will return. He went up a real man, he's gonna come back a real man. Uh, Luke 24. Verses 36 to 39. Luke 24, verses 36 to 29. This is just before his leaving, just before they go to uh, the Mount of Olives so that he can depart. He has a little time to teach them. We're in verses 36. And as they thus spoke, this is Luke 24, and as they thus spoke or spake, Jesus Himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were petrified, I mean terrified, and affrighted, and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And He said unto them, Why are you troubled? And why do your thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I Myself. Handle Me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as ye see me have. So what did Jesus have just before going back up to heaven? Flesh and bones. Jesus was a real man. And when he was caught up into the clouds of heaven to go back to the kingdom, he was a real man. And in like manner that he was taken up, he shall come back again a real man. Don't take this stuff, that all this mysticism that's going on. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of pastors to, today that will say to a young person asking about the second coming of Christ, oh, you don't have to worry about the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ is when you are converted and He enters into your heart. This is the second coming. Baloney. It isn't the second coming. Why do they go to such ends? Isn't that amazing that there are pastors, that there are ministers in this world who would like to explain away what the Bible teaches so simply and, and so, so clearly. But they do that. It's amazing. Because there are some churches who just don't want to believe in the second coming of Jesus because they, they teach some other second coming or they teach that the end will not be quite that way. And they have to figure out how to do that. Fact number two. His coming is visible to all. Now you know where I'm going. Revelation chapter 7. Excuse me, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. We're in Revelation chapter 1. We're looking at verse 7. His coming is visible to all. 
Behold, he comes with clouds, just like it said in Acts chapter 1. Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. His coming is visible. How many eyes are going to see him come? Every eye. Now, somebody tells you that he's in the desert or he's at the stadium or he's downtown or he's rented a hall and he wants to speak to you. What do you know? It isn't him because if you didn't see him with your eyes, you know that it isn't Jesus Christ. Ah, listen, friends. Satan will try to counterfeit Christ's coming. There's no doubt about it. He will transform himself into an angel of light. He will work mighty miracles. He will solve many of this world's problems when he comes down here. But there's one thing he can't do. He can't make every eye see him. All at the same time. Fact number three. Every ear shall hear him. Also, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we're looking at verses 16 and 17. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And He's going to make a pile of noise. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. To the point that even the dead can hear Him. That's a lot of noise. Have you ever tried it? Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Every ear shall hear Him to the point that even the dead wake up. Some churches would like to teach that Jesus is going to come secretly. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? He's going to come secretly and He's going to snatch up people in a great secret rapture. And the rest will stay behind and have a second chance. Now, I'll tell you what, if that was true, I'd be tempted to take the second chance. Hey, Let's get the best of both worlds. Let's sin all we want while we have the first chance. And then at the second chance, we can reform our act, right? No. It doesn't work that way. Do you know that sin doesn't work that way either? Do you know that if you would steep yourself in sin, you'd be destroying your desire and capacity to know Him? The Bible says this is life eternal to know Him. I want to know Him. But you can't know Him if you destroy your capacity to know Him and to desire Him. What would it be like to have no more desire? Well, that would be the unpardonable sin. And there are a lot of people in the first chance that would commit the unpardonable sin. Hey, it doesn't make any sense at all. It's all a deception. How do I know? Because every eye shall see Him. He's not coming secretly to rapture people away. What a... Never mind. Every ear shall hear Him. There will be no secret. Fact number four. Matthew 16, verse 27. Matthew 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with the angels, and then He shall, he shall reward every man according to His works. How many men is He going to reward according to their works? Everyone. Well, I guess then there's no second chance. If he comes down here the first time and he gives to everyone their reward, there's no point in having a second chance. Fact number five, Revelation chapter six. Revelation six, and we're looking at verses 14 to 17. 14 to 17. 
And the heavens departed as a scroll when it is rolled together and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand well? Hmm. Doesn't sound to me like people won't know that Jesus has come. Does it? No. They will know. They will know. And the solemn truth is, there's going to be two groups at the end of time. There's going to be a group who will love His appearing, and there's going to be a group calling for the mountains to fall on them. And the question for ourselves this morning is, which group will we be in? Which group will you be in? Which group do you want to be in? Do we at least know that? Oh, man. We need to get our act together, don't you think? Now listen, we can't get our act together. It's not a matter of getting our act together. It's a matter of getting on our knees and asking God by His Holy Spirit and by the grace of God to work the miracles in our hearts that need to be worked. We need a change of heart. We need a change of heart every day. We need a change of heart in every aspect of life. It doesn't all happen all at once. We can be converted sometimes in one one big decision. Oh, but there are many aspects of life that we haven't even thought of yet that we need to deal with and we need to be converted on every point. And may we pray and may we ask the Lord to guide us that way. Now, someone's going to say, of course, doesn't the Bible teach that Jesus will come as a thief in the night? Well, yes, the Bible says that. Revelation 16, verse 15. Revelation 16, we're looking at verse 15. Jesus Speaking says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walks naked and they see his shame. Does he come as a thief? That's what it says. But let me tell you, he comes as a thief because he's coming suddenly, not when you're expecting him. Ah, but he doesn't come secretly. He comes suddenly, but he's noisy when he does it. He really, really does. But isn't it secret? 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-6. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-6. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Oh, he's coming as a thief. Ah, but you and I have a jump on this thing. We understand what's going to happen. We can be ready for what is going to happen. You are all the children of light and the children of the day. You are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch, let's be alert, let's be sober, let's be on the ball, let's know what's going on, let's be ready for the time that Jesus comes. And so there are five facts. His coming is literal. As He went up, so He will return. His coming is visible. Every eye shall see Him. His coming is audible. Even the dead shall hear Him. His coming is once and for all. His reward is with Him. And His coming is dramatic. The whole world will be in convulsions when He comes. Are you going to be ready in that day? 
Last verse. Matthew 24, verse 42 to 44. And that verse is not on your page because I just thought of it. Matthew 24. And we're looking at verse 42 to 44. Watch therefore. Stay awake therefore. For ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this. If the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye ready. For in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man is coming. Are you ready? Do you know that we're living in the antitypical Day of Atonement? Do you know what Jesus is trying to do with His people and for His people? Do you know that His plans include the whole world? That He intends to give the whole world another chance by cleansing His people and making a demonstration through His people that the whole world would see the glory of God in their lives and the whole world will be brought to make a decision, won't they? Oh, yes. Come out of her, my people, will be the cry. And they'll look at our lives and they'll say... They are righteous and they're calling us out of Babylon and this has been confusion and they're going to see and they're going to have to make a decision. But friends, they won't make a decision for right if you and I are not right. You and I are supposed to be the witnesses. Are we? Aren't we? Yes. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.